0: Welcome to the Krieg DeVault podcast series. As a business leader, navigating the legal landscape can be daunting. That's why we're here to provide you with the insights you need. Join us as we break down the latest news, laws, and trends shaping your
1: industry. Welcome back to the Krieg DeVault podcast. I'm your host, George Lepinotis. I'd like to welcome back to the podcast our podcast veterans and alumni, Bob Grising and Travis Lovett. Bob, Travis, thanks for joining us again.
0: Glad to be here. Yep. Good to see you, George.
1: Hey, Travis, as we said, you're an alumni of the podcast, but today we're talking about a very different subject and something that is interesting to our listeners who presumably have found this podcast because... They maybe either had questions about it or heard some rumors. What is CTA, other than Chicago Transit Authority?
0: (laughs) Yeah, CTA stands for the Corporate Transparency Act. The CTA is a new law that Congress enacted for purposes of combating illegal activity, typically organized and run by nefarious actors such as terrorist organizations, drug traffickers, et cetera. And the theory is that the federal government will have certain entities as defined in subject under the act to report certain information to the federal government.
1: Okay. So let's think about, let's unpack that. Bob, maybe you could uh, weigh in on the origins of this thing. It is a law. And for those of our listeners who think of laws, it's a federal law. Correct. That is designed to help dissuade illegal activity what are the origins of that? Were, were corporations being hijacked for illegal activity?
2: Yes, there's been a lot of information out there that indicates that our the business structure that's common in the United States is also subject to misuse and abuse by those who are trying to launder money, trying to hide the origins of the money, trying to hide the recipients of the money. And so the idea is that A money laundering process would use what would appear to be a legitimate business, but to just push money through it, that can then go to these other purposes that Travis mentioned. You sort of use the name nefarious, but it's really sort of any type of criminal enterprise. And by gathering the information to try to look behind the curtain a little bit, the federal government, through the financial crimes area of the Department of the Treasury, feels like they will then be able to better track the flow of funds and help identify those who are participating in these criminal enterprises. And so the policy sounds like a good one, but it it certainly has uh, put a significant burden and requires a large gathering of information in a way that has not typically been done before, certainly not for these purposes.
1: So yeah, let's talk about that. Because in Colloquially, I like to refer to the United States as having an outlaw mentality, right? That we don't have to report what is not the government's business, and that even our Constitution protects that right to privacy from an overintrusive government. What is it about this act, and who does it apply to? So we know they have a legitimate purpose; they're trying to dissuade criminal activity and the illegal flow of of monies. But does that mean that? every company in the United States now has these serious
2: reporting requirements? Well, there's a list of criteria for which you are considered, and the term you used is correct, George. It's termed a reporting company. Now, there are a lot of exemptions to that, and those companies that are in many ways already subject to oversight or reporting that the government feels like they have good insight into what's going on are not covered by this. So in most situations, it's going to capture the smaller, privately held, family-owned businesses, and again, in a way that hasn't been done before. If you have owners, you're going to, you know, in, in a LLC, tax as a partnership, you'll file information about who your owners are with the IRS. But that's not gone into a public repository of information that is then available to those participating in, in these areas dealing with criminal activity, intelligence, national security. And that's why this is a little bit different.
1: So, Travis, when we're talking about the companies that are, are being targeted here, are we talking about exemptions like many of these overburdensome federal laws for small companies? It sounds like what what, what you're saying is it actually is targeting small companies.
0: That's correct. There's in the statute 23 explicit exemptions as bob mentioned mostly applicable to entities that are already subject to federal oversight example would be financial institutions banks different types of credit reporting companies as well as other entities like public companies again where there's going to be an avenue for the federal government to already identify the owners and so the federal government is really narrowing down on entities that have less than 5 million aggregate revenue and 20 or less than 20 employees. And therefore, their, the smaller companies will be likely the ones that are going to be subject to the reporting obligations.
2: It's also, if I could jump in here a little bit too, those uh, companies that are truly active in operating are not the target of what's going on here. And that's where this exemption that we talked about comes into play. More specifically, you are exempt if you have more than 20 employees and more than $5 million of revenue reported in your last tax return. And so, if you're a large company and you've got a lot of employees, uh, you're going to be exempt. There are some nuances here, though, that give us uh, some concerns that we can talk about a little bit later.
1: Well, and yeah, well, I want to get to those, but before we do, I, I'm, I'm really just trying to understand who it covers and who it's targeting. And so, let's take a couple of examples. Let's say a small construction company. With an owner and potentially three or four employees and a couple million dollars in revenue, they will be in fact required to make reporting under the CTA. Is that correct?
2: I would agree with that.
1: What about a mom and pop restaurant where mom and dad own the restaurant in a, some sort of limited liability company or even an S Corp? Would they be required to report if they have 20 employees, but they don't have $5 million in revenue? Correct. Correct.
2: Yeah, this test that is set up there, there are really three components of it, the number of employees, the amount of revenues that are generated annually, and then also operating in the United States. And, you know, we're sort of letting that one go because I think most of who we're talking with are going to be in the United States. But you're right, George, that a number of these Main Street type of businesses are now going to be uh, responsible for putting this information into this database. That is supposed to be private and supposed to be not available to anybody except for those involved with these areas uh, such as criminal activities. So prosecutors' offices and so on, or the intelligence agencies, and they will have access to it. And then um, a few others will as well. But the idea is that it's not publicly available information, but it is information that is deposited with the government.
1: Okay. So, well, before we maybe talk more about the philosophy of that. Let's talk a little bit about what information is being collected. So assuming that your corporation or, and and I'm assuming this applies to other types of entities that are not necessarily corporations, correct? Like limited liability companies?
2: Yes, exactly. And it's really any organization that comes into existence through the filing of a document with a state agency. So Articles of Incorporation for. For a corporation, articles of organization for a limited liability company, and then also this gets covered by our indigenous peoples area as well. So tribal, tribal filings and Travis, you know a bit more about that. So I don't know if you want to say a few words on that here.
0: Yeah, it's broad enough that if you are filing any document with a state or tribe to form an entity or even qualify to do business under a particular jurisdiction and therefore you are going to be deemed a reporting company under the CTA.
2: So foreign companies coming to the United States that file to qualify to do business here will get caught up in this as well. Okay. So,
1: Travis, let's expand on what you just said with the next obvious question, which is what information needs to be provided? What are they looking for?
0: So from the reporting company that's subject, you're going to be disclose certain information about the company, such as the name, trade business, current address, the uh, jurisdiction which is you've been formed to, or qualified to do business under, and then, of course, your federal taxpayer ID number. And the federal government is really after three buckets of information. Bucket one is who are the owners. Bucket two is those that are exercising substantial control. And bucket three are the individuals that are actually played a role in filing that, the formation documents or the documents to qualify to do business. And we can break this down a little further, but briefly, the owners... They're looking at those that exercise 25% or more equity, and they're looking at people for purposes of substantial control. That could be officers, directors, managers, those that have some type of decision-making power within the company, which is very broad and can create a lot of different nuances.
2: And that's where that phrase, substantial control, is not really well defined at this point in time. There is some effort, I think, in reacting to FinCEN's publication of different rules to try to get some clarity. But theoretically, it would go to, for example, a lending source that says you can't make a change in control of the management team without us saying yes, where there is involvement with significant company decisions that are reserved by investor groups or lending groups and so on. And so it is potentially very uh, broad and who could be considered to, exercise substantial control.
1: And then you also mentioned another category that is near and dear to our hearts, right? And that, and that is the, the person organizing. Oftentimes, that's an attorney or an advisor. Does the CTA require the advisors to disclose their information as well?
2: Not just by being an advisor. It requires those who are involved in the creation of the entity. And right now, it's they also limit it to two people. So, The person who actually signs the Articles of Incorporation, for example, or the person who told the signer to sign the Articles of Incorporation. So they're trying to, again, identify those who have active involvement in the creation of these entities. If I could flush up on that from a small business perspective,
0: most business owners will have the resource of working, as you said, George, with an advisor or some type of attorney that can assist with that or even a third-party provider. But for most businesses, it'll be challenging on them because they'll have to keep track of any type of ownership changes or any type of um, changes that can result from the company. We talked earlier about the large operating company exemption. What happens if a company reduces its employment workforce or increases its workforce can impact whether or not it's subject to the CTA. And once becoming subject to the CTA, you have 30 days to file your report with the federal government.
1: So... The CTA is is in fact retroactive, correct? So if you were formed before the CTA went into effect, you now have to comply with the CTA.
2: Correct. The initial effective date of this is January one of 2024. And for entities that existed as of that date, they have all of 24 to make the filing and to gather the information and and to submit the reports that are required. Entities that are newly formed after January 1 of 2024, so somebody that comes in and starts a business in the middle of January, they will have currently 30 days to file that report, though there's some effort to extend that to a total of 90 days. But you still have to gather it, and uh, and new companies will be obligated to get that done shortly after formation, and existing companies will have all of 2024 to get that done.
1: What are the requirements to update the filing once you've made it? So, for instance, you said, Bob, if, I, if I'm understanding it, there's a the limit of, of two individuals that you're going to include on a CTA filing. Uh, let's say it's an attorney and, and one of the officers. If that information were to change in the future, do you have an obligation to go back and amend the filing every time a change happens?
2: Correct. Changes to the information that is included in the report must be updated. And here's one of the sort of gotcha type of mousetraps in this. You've got 30 days to do so. And if it's someone that is right in the middle of the company and active in the day-to-day business of the company, maybe you're aware that there's a change in your president or a change in some of these C-level positions. But if you have a group of shareholders and somebody gives something away to their kids or grandkids or they put something into a trust, you may not know that until maybe the next annual meeting when you're sending out your notice for the shareholders meeting. And so there are some, as I said, gotcha traps here. And one of the things that we're thinking through is changes to the governance documents, the shareholder agreements, buy-sell agreements that will help assure that the information that is needed to be reported gets updated on a timely basis and and obligating the owners, the beneficial owners, uh, to do that.
1: Yeah. Before we get there, though, let's talk a little bit about noncompliance traps. I'll tell you, as both an attorney and a business owner, this sounds like a pretty onerous uh, reporting regime on what has historically been an independent part of our corporate existence, right? An LLC is formed or a corporation is, is, is formed and, and filed with the appropriate state agency and the owners or shareholders or members are allowed to function in their own world at, as they see fit with little to no corporate oversight with the exception of potentially some state filings. What we're looking at here now with the CTA is very different. What about those clients who share my concern and think, why should I have to do this? Or are there ways that I can protect my privacy from this type of broad reporting requirement?
2: Well, certainly that is a concern. And and that's part of getting on top of this soon so that you can engage in the type of planning or restructuring that may be needed. But it is a concern because, again, it maybe five or six years from now or 10 years, it'll all be normal and we won't worry about it. But this is considered to be the first time that this type of information reach has extended in the way that it has. So one of the ways to help avoid that is to not be a reporting company. So which may be hard to do. You know, if, you, if you're if you a small restaurant owner, as you mentioned earlier, George, and and you're just struggling to make ends meet, the chance of you getting over $5 million of right. revenue is pretty slim. So do you then choose to not have an entity at all? That might be one of the things that you choose to do and just operate as a sole proprietorship. Then if you don't mind reporting as the company, but you have beneficial owners that don't want to submit the information, and it's it's relatively benign when it when you think of the information that's gathered, you know, it's a copy of your, to identify who it is, so a copy of a driver's license or a passport, you know, name and address and so on. But it still is personal information that many people don't want to provide. And so you would then perhaps be able to manage your ownership so you are no longer a 25% or more owner of a company. Or if you have kept your finger in the on the pulse and say, well, before the, this company I just gave away to my kids does anything. I want them to come back to me and, and get my approval. Maybe you have to let that go so you're not considered to have substantial control. So those are some of the the thought processes that that the small business owners who are going to get caught up in this most likely will have to go through to determine how they want to either prepare for it and accept it or to find a way to navigate through the woods to a different alternative.
1: So, Travis, tell us a little bit about the risk of non compliance. I mean, as we talk about this, part of me says that compliance is a way of weeding out the legitimate companies who are willing to report their information from those that are illegitimate, right? That authorities will use this as a means of saying, yes, this filing for Bob's Cafe by Bob and Susie seems very legitimate, whereas this filing by the East India Trading Company seems awfully suspicious to me. What are the teeth here? What are, in fact, for those that don't wish to comply or non-compliance, what do the authorities have in their toolbox to come after them?
0: Yeah, so the, the teeth behind it is a reporting company or individual that violates the CTA will be subject to civil penalties of not more than $500 per day and that's capped at $10,000 in the aggregate. Or you could be in prison of not more than two years or both. So that's the teeth behind it.
1: Two years.
0: Two years, correct. And right now the what's a little wor- worrisome about all this is that there is teeth behind the statute, yet they're still coupled with so much uncertainty. Even FinCEN is, uh rolled out some rules and some conversation about how they can modify the reporting form the beneficial ownership report, how they can modify that to allow even a selection of reporting unknown owners or reporting their efforts. So they're discussing a drop-down menu in the template for purposes of allowing essentially a filing with some uncertainty because there may be instances, as Bob discussed earlier, where people don't know the shareholders that have given off their shares and equity to their children.
2: Or if they know the beneficial owner says... You're not getting it from me. You know, why should I do that? And one of the keys here, too, for the teeth part of it, those drop-down are temporary alternatives. You still have an obligation to submit that information, and your filing is not really considered, at least under current proposed rulemaking, I should say, is not, will not be considered to be complete until you give the information about all the beneficial owners.
1: Well, you know, I guess given all of this information, let's touch briefly before we wrap up on a couple of thoughts that I have. The first is, who can access this information? One of you said local prosecutors, I'm assuming federal prosecutors, um, law enforcement, state and federal law enforcement. Who has access to this information?
0: So as we were talking earlier, said the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, Network, which is the Bureau of the Department of Treasury, they are implementing a, a system known as BOSS, Beneficial Ownership Secured System, and through this secured platform, that's where the reports are going to be stored for privacy purposes. The entities that are allowed to access that are criminal enforcement agencies and also some financial institutions that request access to those reports. But as mentioned earlier, they're not designed to be public information. It's not something you can look up online. It's secured there and only accessible for purposes and related to criminal enforcement.
1: Okay. And then as we think about the companies that we represent, the small businesses that we deal with, what are we doing to help them work through this? How is it that we can help them plan for this new reporting requirement, Bob, you mentioned earlier modifying operating agreements and really thinking through how our clients manage, so to speak, the information associated with their companies and corporations. What else are we doing and, and, and what else can, should a, should a potential a company that might be exposed to this uh, need to do to, uh, to protect
2: itself? Well, one of the things we're doing is things like this podcast. We've already issued several communications that we call alerts that we send out to uh, a distribution, email distribution list that we have. And and any of the listeners here, if they're interested in getting those, uh, you know, send in your contact information and we'll get that sent out to you. Uh, Certainly, there's a lot of materials online where you can do a search and and find a lot of communications like ours. uh, from across the board. Most of this is from the legal profession, uh, but some of it is from some service providers as well. And so awareness is a real big part of this, of not getting caught by surprise. Some of the things that I've mentioned as alternatives will take a bit of time to implement. It's not like you, you're going to say, oh, well, I need to do this and it's done. You'll have communications with your owners. You'll have to f- figure out what to do and so on. So Awareness is a big part of it. And then once you're aware of it, then you determine, am I or am I not a reporting company? And then maybe if I am, do I care if I am? And if I don't want to be a reporting company, what can I do to qualify for an exemption? And as I said, with many of these, that is really not realistically available. So then you're going to have to deal with uh, the compliance issue. And um, that's where uh, getting the information, gathering the information, and then protecting those who have participated appropriately from those who have refused to participate appropriately is where we see some of the changes in our operating agreements, our shareholder agreements, and so on, where people will be obligated to provide the information in order for the company to comply and will then back that up if there is risk that the company suffers or losses that the company suffers. And so, uh, you know, an example might be with, um, it's a client that I have alerted about this that have four owners that are 25% apiece. One of them is active in the company. Well, maybe that person ought to be 25.3% and everybody else is 24.9%. So only one person is reported as a beneficial owner and not all four of them. Yeah, we don't know what the attitude and desires of clients will be in every situation, but there are a lot of ways in which this can be addressed and managed.
1: Travis, as you look to the new company final thought here, uh, is it something that you feel ought to just be put into place from the very get-go, especially knowing that most new companies probably aren't going to meet the threshold for an exemption?
0: Yeah, I think there's some room for that, especially from, the preparation of your organic documentation and following the company and having, thinking through, you know, how how shareholder decisions are made or what impact they have in the company and how that affects their ownership and exercising substantial control. So having those conversations and discussions with your counsel in the forefront could certainly be helpful. But from an overall perspective, I kind of think of it a lot like filing your taxes. It is a burden. It is something that's got to be done and then there's a penalty if you don't do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's...
1: uh. It's an interesting way to look at that.
2: And let me throw out, if I could, one other example that I think was a surprise to us with this small company exemption or application is subject to this large company exemption. But part of this planning is is also restructuring the business. We ran across an example where you had a, a large mega company with hundreds of employees. But the parent company, the tax preparer, using single member disregarded entities for all of its subsidiaries. The only one that is there is the parent and that parent has two employees. Well, that's because all the other employees are at the operating company. So you may want to think through how we restructure the business in order to qualify for those exemptions. You know, that, that would be another example.
1: Well, just another part of our corporate analysis. Bob, Travis, thank you for joining us today. Both are members of our business acquisitions and securities practice group. You can find out more about Bob Grising and Travis Lovett by going to our website, KDlegal.com or KriegdeVault.com, and uh, typing a search in their name under attorneys. Uh, you'll find a link in their bios to more information regarding the CTA and the and the uh, thought leadership that they've published. Uh, regarding this very, boys, I'm going to call it controversial law because I'm not one for reporting the federal government. But uh, I understand that our clients uh, could really benefit from discussing it with you, especially if they qualify. So appreciate your time today. Appreciate your listening to our podcast and hope you have a great day.
2: Thank you, George. Thanks, listeners. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Krieg DeVault podcast series brought to you by Krieg DeVault a leading business-focused law firm. Stay connected by subscribing to our podcast on your preferred platform, ensuring you're always in the loop for upcoming episodes. Anywhere across the nation, Krieg DeVault is your trusted law firm for providing practical legal advice that takes in the big picture without losing sight of the details. Learn
1: more at kriegdevault.com.